The following is presented by the Center for Political Innovation, CPI, Building American Socialism for the 21st Century. To learn more, visit cpiusa.org. I have not live-streamed in a long time, and I'm finally back, and then we have breaking news about events uh, taking place, and so I did the breaking news, uh, covered that, and now, finally, uh, how long has it been? It's been... Wow, less than an hour and a half, or uh, about, about, mm, uh, it's been, what time is it now? It's, you know, it's been well over an hour since I said I was going to be here, but alas, I am here. I'm back. My voice, my voice is back. Do you see that? My voice is finally back at full capacity. Was thinking about doing this yesterday, but decided I was not ready to do this yesterday uh, because I just wasn't sure my voice was back, but now I'm here in my lovely Brooklyn apartment, and my voice is back, and we're here, and we're going to have yet another one of our amazing late-night conversations, finally back. Wow, I went to Nicaragua. I came back from Nicaragua. I had a sore throat, and I was coughing a lot, and I went to the doctor, and I got COVID tests, and it wasn't a COVID test when I had a rapid test, and it wasn't a COVID test when I had a PCR test. I didn't have COVID. Uh, They did the strep throat test. It wasn't strep throat. uh, And it turned out it was a throat viral infection. But now it's all done. As you can hear, my voice is back at full capacity. I am am back at full capacity. It's wintertime. It's colder here uh, than it has been. But I've got a lot of things to talk about. And we're all back. And I've got plenty of unnamed water beverage. So... Be sure to hit the like button. Be sure to hit the subscribe button. Be sure to hit the notifications bell so you get notified the next time I do this. Um, I love you all. I really do. Really glad that you're all here. Um, I'm sorry about the little delay. I had to just get my body together. Um, And, uh, you know, here we are. Um, You know, here we are. Uh, Here we are. I am on here ready to engage with all of you. The community around this YouTube channel is very exciting and it's growing, it's expanding. Um, and, you know, we are we are very close to each other. Uh, I, not being able to talk to all of you, it felt like I was, I was missing a friend. You know, it, it really felt like there was a really good friend uh, that I had that I just wasn't able to, to talk to. I really genuinely missed getting on YouTube here and talking with all of you because it it is it is not just a source of uh, of of political expression for me it it really gives me something and to be able to engage with all of you to be able to talk to you is just such a rewarding experience and it's so reassuring uh, so welcome everybody uh, the way we do things here I'm sure all of you know but for those of you who do not know the way we do things is first, I give my opening remarks, not sure how long they'll be tonight, uh, but we do the opening remarks. Then from there, uh, we do the roll call, find out who's here. We call you out by names and locations. So that's what we do next is the roll call. Then after that, uh, after that, uh, I answer your super chat questions for the rest of the night. That's how we roll. Uh, So if you have a super chat, send it to me and I will write it down in this lovely notepad. And that'll be the second half of our show. So that's how we roll. That's how we do it. Post this on Reddit. Post this on Facebook. Post this on Twitter. Post this on social media. Post this everywhere. 
uh, everywhere videos are posted. Uh, post this video. Let's have a conversation. I'm going to try to do as many of these in the next few days as we can, but who the hell knows what's going to happen because a lot of things are happening all at once. I did take the opportunity, uh, if you don't, if you, if you, if you didn't notice, while my voice was out of commission, I took the opportunity um, to make some like compilation videos. Um, that was fun. I did one on socialist patriotism. I did one on the drama with the Communist Party. Um, I did one on uh, what did I do? I did one on something else. Uh, that was fun, and I and it was good to kind of go through some of my clips because I think there's a lot of people who watch these streams that aren't familiar, especially with some of the older stuff that we've done on this channel. Um, so uh, in that case, um, you know, I thought that was kind of a good opportunity. It was a good opportunity to take. Just opening up my laptop here. Uh, you know, you got like a million things going on right now, just a million things, but I do them all and I do them all to the best of my ability, to the best of my ability. Um, and there you go. So uh, we we did the, you know, it was right after, I don't know if you saw that interview I did with Jackson Hinkle. Jackson Hinkle had me on his show the day I got back from Nicaragua. I got back Thursday and Friday, I was back at work, and then I ended my day at work by getting on with Jackson Hinkle. And that interview, I kept coughing, I kept you know drinking water, and after that interview, my voice was shot. Saturday, my voice was shot. Sunday, my voice was shot, and I was not up at tip-top shape uh, after that, but now I'm back. And now I am able to stream, and I'm able to engage with all of you, so welcome, everybody. Hit the like button, hit the subscribe button, hit the notifications bell if there's something you want me to discuss. Send me a super chat, and now I will give you my opening remarks. Now, for my opening remarks, I, I figured I could get on here and I could talk about recent events. I could talk about Kyle Rittenhouse. I could talk about what I was just talking about on the news about this car that, that rammed into a Christmas parade uh, in, in a suburb of Milwaukee. I could talk about uh, culture wars. I could talk about drama, you know, and political people and arguments on the internet. I'm not going to talk about any of that. My opening remarks tonight, my opening remarks tonight, I'm going to talk about politics in the United States. And most importantly, I'm going to talk about what needs to be done. Media painting China as reactionary. What needs to be done? Because there is something that desperately needs to be done. We need a repolarization of U.S. society very, very desperately. Uh, that's what we need. And I'm going to explain why we need that. So, folks, now, the Democratic Party of the United States claims to be the party of the working class. They get a lot of money from labor unions. They get a lot of support from people of color and working class folks. They claim to be the party of the working class. They talk about ta stopping tax cuts for the rich. They talk about fighting for the little guy. But at the end of the day, they have betrayed the working class. Barack Obama said that if workers' right to form a union was ever on on in question, uh, that he would walk the picket line with workers. But yet, when Barack Obama was president in the state of Wisconsin, uh, they were passing anti-labor legislation, right-to-work laws, and Barack Obama didn't make a single statement about it, didn't move a muscle. 
Barack Obama said that he was in favor of something called the Employee Free Choice Act that would restore card check unionization, make it much easier for workers to unionize on the job. But as soon as Barack Obama was president, it fell right out of the back of his mind. He forgot all about it. Completely forgot all about it. Barack Obama was the first president to cut food stamps, right? Food stamps, a program that supplies food to low-income people. Barack Obama was the first president to cut food stamps, to cut food to low-income working families. Barack Obama cut food stamps. It was criminal. It was absolutely criminal. The Democrats claim that they are the party of the working class, of the labor movement, labor unions, low-income people, but they ain't. And the police state repression that has particularly come down on black and brown folks escalated under the Democrats. Part of the reason you saw the big uprisings in Ferguson, Missouri, and in Baltimore under Barack Obama's presidency is because many in the African-American community thought that things would finally get better. They said, there's finally somebody who looks like us in the White House. Things are going to get better. And they didn't. The Democrats are not really the party of the working class. They are the party of the financial oligarchy. They are the party of the big banks and monopolies and corporations. But in order to get support among the population, they beat their chest as if they are the party of the working class. That's the Democrats. But there's also another party in the United States, the Republicans. The Republicans don't claim to be the party of the working class. The Republicans, on the other hand, present themselves as the party of the small business owners, of the middle class. They talk about get the government off our backs. They talk about pull yourself up by your bootstraps, work hard and get ahead. They talk about the need for a free market, deregulation. They claim to be the party of small business owners, but they're not. They're not. Look, throughout this country, Throughout the red states of this country, you will find prosperous urban centers, places like Atlanta, places like Pittsburgh, places like Indianapolis, Gary, Indiana, cities that used to be full of prosperous small businesses that have now become economically destitute. Throughout this country, small businesses are falling apart, and the Republicans have been a big part of that. Republicans have signed free trade agreements. Republicans have passed legislation to protect big ultra-monopolies like Walmart. Republicans have betrayed small business owners the same way Democrats have betrayed workers. Republicans are the party of oligarchy. They're a party of big banks and big corporations, big oil companies, big monopolies. They're a party of Walmart. But they claim, in order to try and defeat the Democrats, they beat their chest. They claim to be the party 
of the middle class, of small business owners, but they're not. The Democrats are an oligarchical party. They are a party of big ultra-monopolists that pretends to be a party of the working class. The Republicans are a party of big ultra-monopolists, wealthy corporations, and oligarchs that pretends to be a party of small business owners. We have two parties in the United States, two parties in the United States that claim to represent different social strata. In reality, they both represent big monopolies. What is different between the two parties is not their policies. It's not their policies. Writing it down. Not their policies. What separates the two parties is their rhetoric. One party seeks to mobilize the working class, the labor movement, low-income people, to support them. Another party claims to mobilize the middle class, small business owners, professionals, the suburbs, to support them. One party emphasizes socialistic rhetoric, you know, rich, very rich versus everybody else, fighting for the common man. One party utilizes libertarian-ish rhetoric, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, free market, land of opportunity. But at the end of the day, both parties serve monopoly. They don't serve the small business owners and they don't serve the working class. I'm going to write these down. Homeless aid org. Writing, writing down the super chats here. All right. Thank you, Dan, for your super chat. Good to see you as well. But what's interesting is if you go to socialist countries in the 21st century, you will see the exact opposite of what we have in the United States. And it doesn't exactly match up with traditional Marxist rhetoric. But what you will see, what I just saw in Nicaragua, what China has had very successfully, what has made China, according to some recent reports, at this point, the richest country in the world, what has you know, had huge economic successes in Vietnam, the World Business Forum calls Vietnam a, a, a economic miracle, is the opposite of what we have in the United States. In the United States... We have two political parties 
one that claims to fight for the middle class, one that claims to fight for the working class, we have two political parties that in reality serve oligarchy. But if you go to Nicaragua, where I just was, you have one ruling party, the FSLN, and that party fights for the working class, and it fights for small business owners against oligarchy. And that's what they have in China. In China, they have one ruling party, the Communist Party, and that party fights for the working class, and it fights for the small business owners against the oligarchy. What you have in Vietnam is you have one party, the Communist Party, that fights for the working class, that fights for the small business owners, that controls the economy and resists the oligarchy. Now, this doesn't exactly uh, match, I should say, with the traditional Marxist narrative, right? Traditionally, in Marxism, socialist governments are supposed to be dictatorships of the proletariat. A dictatorship of the proletariat, meaning that they fight for the working class, those of us who sell our labor power to survive, those of us who get paid wages. We, the working class, are who is supposed to be in power and in a socialist society. It's the dictatorship of the proletariat. However, even in Russia, you'll recall that when the Bolsheviks came to power, they didn't call it simply a dictatorship of the proletariat. The Bolsheviks called their government a revolutionary dictatorship of the workers and peasants. Because the peasants were the majority of the population of Russia at that time. Leon Trotsky insisted that the peasants should have no role in the Bolshevik government with his theory of permanent revolution. But Lenin vehemently disagreed and said, no, we need to establish a revolutionary dictatorship of the workers and the peasants. And that's why the Soviet flag has a hammer for the working class, factory workers, and a sickle for the peasantry. That's why in the United States, the Communist Party said, therefore, a workers and farmers government. In the 1920s, that was the slogan of the Communist Party, for a workers and farmers government. The working class, yes, according to Marxism, it is the most important class in history, the final class of history, the driver of, of history forward. But in order to have a prosperous socialist society at that time in the 20th century, it was necessary for the peasantry and the working class to enter an alliance. Right? And in China, it wasn't just the peasantry. In China, the working class entered an alliance with the peasantry and with the national bourgeoisie. They had the block of four classes. You can read about this. On the Chinese flag, they don't have a hammer and sickle. Instead, they have a star representing the Communist Party, and then they have four other stars. And those four stars represent the block of four classes that the Chinese Communist Party led. That while Mao Zedong said that they have a proletarian ideology, that they 
the Communist Party, with its proletarian ideology, leads a block of four classes, a block of four classes, a block of four progressive classes that are fighting to build a new China. So never, never has a communist government anywhere in the world been a purely working class government. In Russia, it was a revolutionary dictatorship of the workers and peasants. In China, it was the Communist Party with its proletarian ideology leading a block of four classes. North Korea, the symbol of the Korean Workers' Party. It's It's the workers, the peasants, and the intellectuals. They have a pen. In Eastern Europe, the countries were called people's democracies. And it was a a coalition of various anti-fascist forces, forces that had fought the Nazis during World War II. They started out with coalitions of different parties. They eventually merged into one party. In Venezuela today, the PSUV, the United Socialist Party, has people of different classes in it. There's mainly working class people in it, but there's also small business owners. There's also farmers, farm cooperatives. But nowhere, nowhere have we seen a pure working class government. Trotsky, with his theory of permanent revolution and his rejection of Leninism, his rejection of of the Bolshevik understanding of imperialism, his attempt to stay pure to what Karl Marx had said, thank you for the super chat, Trotsky argued that you have to have a purely proletarian government. But everywhere in the world that communists have actually taken power, they have been at the center of a coalition government. And now what we're seeing in the world, what I saw in Nicaragua, what we're seeing as amazingly successful in China, is you have a government. It's led by a communist party. And that communist party leads a coalition of the working class and the small business owners. When I was in Nicaragua, I saw this. In Nicaragua, the labor unions are with the Sandinistas. The working class is with the Sandinistas. But the small business owners are also with the Sandinistas. They have a micro-entrepreneurship program where they've enabled hundreds of thousands of Nicaraguans to start their own businesses. The Nicaraguan government has sponsored the creation of 4,000 different worker cooperatives that have been created. These are not state enterprises. These are independent worker cooperatives given startup money by the Nicaraguan government. The Nicaraguan government is supported by the labor unions, factory workers. It's also supported by the micro-entrepreneurs. It's also supported by the small business owners. It's also supported by the farmers. It's also supported by the cooperatives. And this alliance between the workers and the small business owners has led to Nicaragua's economy becoming very prosperous. In Nicaragua, uh, they have invested in what they call the productive economy. The working class and the small business owners both create lots of wealth. If you make the working class comfortable. If you put more money into the hands of the working class, average workers have higher wages. They then spend that money and the economy gets better. If small business owners are able to start their businesses and create products that are better for the community, that tends to make the economy better. 
investing in the working class, investing in the middle class and the small business owners results in creating a very strong economy. And that's what they've done in China. In China, they have worked hard to raise working class people out of poverty, with poverty alleviation programs, to provide services to working class people. And they've also worked very, very hard to cultivate small business owners and to fund and to give backing to small business owners. And as a result, China is very prosperous. And this is really the nature of 21st century socialism. The 20th century, we had socialism in the Soviet Union. And socialism in the Soviet Union wasn't a straight line. You know, had the Bolsheviks come to power, immediately 15 countries invaded the Soviet Union. And at that point, they declared war communism or military communism. They nationalized everything and the Bolshevik army controlled everything. After the Civil War was over, they had market reforms. They had the new economic policy, started having private business, private farming, etc. And then, starting in 1928, they launched the five-year plans where Stalin mobilized the population to build an apparatus of state-run industries. Uh, and they built a modern steel system. They built a modern steel manufacturing apparatus, a modern power plant, uh, an electrical system, um, a whole new university system. They, they built railways and tramways. You know, and, and the, the 1930s in the Soviet Union, you saw real economic miracles happening. No country had ever rapidly industrialized at that rate. Uh, they brought universal, uh, you know, universal running water to the country, universal electrification of the country, wiped out illiteracy. Uh, the Soviet Union rapidly industrialized in the 1930s with an almost completely state-run economy. Uh, during the 1930s, I believe in 1936, at the time the new Soviet constitution was passed, there was a rate of 91% state ownership in the Soviet Union. And that model, that model, of, you know, of heavy state ownership, the state mobilizing the population to build industries. That became the model that you can refer to as 20th century socialism, where you have, you know, a communist party leading a country, mobilizing the population to build huge state-run industries, to electrify the country, to wipe out illiteracy, to build a modern university system, build hospitals all over the country. And it was been very, it was very effective. All across Eastern Europe, I mean, uh, many, many people gained access to running water, gained access to modern housing, gained access to literacy, uh, got modern university education, all because of the Soviet Union and because of, because of 20th century socialism. Cuba had huge achievements in terms of public health. Uh, you can go read Children of the Revolution, uh, which is a very good study of, of that, you know, by one of the most well-respected scholars of education in the United States. Uh, you know, he wrote a book about the achievements of Cuba's educational system. 20th century socialism was largely the population of a country, the workers and the peasants, being mobilized to build a state-run economy, mobilized to build a state-run, centrally planned economy. And the achievements of it should not be at any point poo-pooed or dismissed. Um, the achievements are massive. Cuba has one of the best medical systems of any country in the world. Uh, you know, the literacy 
programs uh, that, that Cuba carried out. I mean, Cuba sends literacy volunteers all over the world. Um, you look at Eastern Europe, how rapidly these countries were industrialized. Uh, you know, I mean, you, you, it's, it's, it's insane uh, how much industrialization, how much an expansion of life expectancy these countries saw. But that said, after that first hurdle is overcome, after a country that has been historically impoverished, kept in a semi-feudal conditions, industrializes, electrifies, wipes out illiteracy, builds modern industries. At that point, problems start to develop. That's what we saw in the Soviet Union. That's what we saw in Eastern Europe. And we saw that to some extent in China and Cuba and elsewhere. Problems start to develop. After you overcome that first great hurdle, the 20th century model of socialism begins to experience some problems. Uh, you begin to have a lot of stagnation. Okay, people have a job. People have a job. It's Jonathan Kozel, Children of the Revolution, Sam. People have a job, but their job is at a state-run industry. If people, you know, they want to start their own business, they can't. You have some people who work very hard. They go to medical school. They go to university. But despite working hard and getting ahead, they can't really achieve anything. You have an apparatus where if somebody has a new idea, about how to more efficiently do something in industry. That idea gets ignored, suppressed. It's too much work. The boss doesn't want to change how he does things, so new ideas don't get heard. And that while socialism is very effective at overcoming that first great hurdle, if you maintain a completely state-run economy, you start to stagnate. And in the 1960s, 1980s, while there was huge amounts of economic growth in the Soviet Union, there was also some problems. There were a lot of people, especially among the more educated folks in the country, the engineers, the scientists, the artists, the doctors, the college professors, who were very frustrated. We saw the same thing in China. You also have a problem of corruption within the bureaucracy. A lot of times, you know, the only place that you can really gain any privilege in a state-run economy is to be in the government, right? If you want to you want to make more money than everybody else, you have to become a government bureaucrat. And so you get a lot of people who go into the government who don't care about communism and don't care about the revolution. They just want to have more money than everybody else. And you have a bureaucracy that increasingly, increasingly is full of people who, who have problems. So this is, this is a question, 20th century socialism. We should not ever denigrate the achievements of 20th century socialism. And it's tempting to do that right? It's tempting, it's tempting to just say socialism worked. It's tempting to do that because we get lied to so much. I've heard my whole life, socialism never worked anywhere, it failed. And that's all a bunch of malarkey. Sorry, the Soviet Union was the first country in outer space. They wiped out illiteracy. They rapidly industrialized. They defeated the Nazis. They invented the AK-47 rifle. They invented the cell phone. The first cell phone in history was, was invented in the Soviet Union, 1957, Kaprianovich. Right? I mean, the, the, the idea that somehow a socialist society can't work economically, that's malarkey. That's absolutely malarkey. It's complete and utter bullshit. And so it's tempting to just say, see, socialism works, but that's not the whole story. Socialism works very, very well at getting over that first great hurdle, at modernizing a country, at industrializing a country. All the countries in the world that are kept underdeveloped by imperialism 
when socialism emerges. When socialism emerges in that country, it enables them to have growth like you've never seen before. It paves the roads. It electrifies the country. It builds power plants. It builds steel mills. It provides access to medical care. It builds universities. Socialism has tremendous achievements. But if we're going to be completely frank and honest, it has those achievements. But after those achievements are completed, it starts to have a little bit of a problem. Starts to stagnate a little bit. You get a situation where creativity is not really rewarded. You get a situation where where the government increasingly becomes a place for people that just kind of want to get ahead. You get a situation where, you know, in the first years of industrialization, the workers are trying to outdo each other and who can produce the most, right? They call that stakhanovism. The Soviet Union, they call it stakhanovism. Right where if you you know if you dug the most coal or you made the most steel or you you did the most at your job you got a special medal. People were almost competing with each other, trying to do the best. But after 20, 30 years, it became the opposite. You know, when somebody did really well, uh, the other workers resented them and they thought, "Oh, this guy's showing us up. He's showing us up." Right. Um, 20th century socialism starts to have problems. You know, people talk about how. The service in restaurants, if the government runs the restaurant, you know, there's no incentive for them to give you good service. And in fact, the fewer people that come in to the restaurant, uh, the more food uh, that the employees get to take home at the end of the night. <coughs> you start to have problems. And so, as a result of that, socialism needed an adjustment, needed an adjustment. It didn't need to be overthrown. It just needed an adjustment. And the innovator of that adjustment was Deng Xiaoping. Deng Xiaoping in China, he saw that China desperately needed economic growth. He saw that the Soviet Union had cut itself off from China, was no longer helping China. So Deng Xiaoping said, okay, instead of making enemies out of the intellectuals, instead of having the intellectuals be full of all, all this resentment, instead of having the scientists and the engineers and the college professors and the doctors be resentful of socialism, we're going to do the opposite. We're going to cultivate those folks. And in fact, we're going to let them go start their own businesses. And we're going to let them uh, get foreign investment and start joint ventures with the government. In fact, we're going to subsidize. We are going to create a middle class. We're going to create a middle class that is loyal to the Communist Party. And they did it in China. During the 1980s, the Chinese Communist Party worked very, very hard to create a middle class, small business owners, engineers, professionals, and others who were loyal to the party. And that's why in 1989, China didn't have a counter-revolution. All across Eastern Europe, and eventually the Soviet Union, you had socialist governments collapsing. And thank you, Neil. You had socialist governments collapsing. <clears throat> socialist governments collapsed because of a political crisis that involved these middle-class elements. But in China, those middle-class elements had become loyal to the party. The party had unleashed them. The party had cultivated them. The party had helped them to flourish. And as a result, those middle-class elements 
weren't against the party. In fact, it was the opposite. Those middle-class elements were loyal to the party. They defended the party. And that was the beginning of the transition toward 20th century socialism. 20th century socialism is a state-run economy that utilizes a market sector. It is a state-run economy run by a communist party that utilizes a market sector in order to maximize the amount of wealth in society. That's what 20th century socialism, 21st century socialism, has come to mean. That has become the exact opposite of what we have in the United States. In the United States, we have a situation where we have the, the small business owners who work with the Republicans. We have the working class, the labor movement, who work with the Democrats, and both of them get betrayed and the wealth increasingly goes into the hands of a financial oligarchy. The small business owners in the United States are getting poorer. The working people of the United States are getting poorer. The whole population is getting poorer except for the oligarchy in the United States, except for the Wall Street financial class, except for the big bankers and corporations in the United States. Everyone is getting poorer. The small business owners are getting poorer. The middle class is getting poorer. The working class is getting poorer. The black folks are getting poorer. The white folks are getting poorer. Everybody, everybody's getting poorer, except for the ultra-rich, except for the monopolists. And they're building a police state, a more effective police state to try and contain the anger of the population. All right, all right, 20th century. <clears throat> They're using, you know, um, uh, the police state to try and contain the population. But at the end of the day, the government of the United States is engaged in austerity, neoliberalism. It's cutting infrastructure. 27 states are unpaving their roads. I couldn't believe how much better the roads in Nicaragua were than the roads in the United States. I mean, it was shocking to me. Nicaragua is an impoverished developing country that's rising up with socialism. They have better roads than we have in the United States. I mean, I mean, it was shocking to me. The infrastructure in the United States is just in complete disrepair. The infrastructure in this developing country is getting, you know, getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Text on the origin of the state. It's getting bigger and bigger and bigger. They have a government that is aligned with the small business owners. It's aligned with the working class. And it is working to invest in the small business owners, invest in the working class, increase living conditions for the working class, increase living conditions for the small business owners at the expense of the oligarchy. Whereas in the United States, we have a government that serves the oligarchy and is repressing the small business owners, is repressing the working class, is presiding over the economic decline of the working class and the economic decline of the small business owners in the service of the oligarchy. In the United States, the heartland of the United States is being gutted right now. Right? We don't have strong 
prosperous cities throughout the American heartland. The United States is devastated. The wealth of the United States is piling up in New York City, and it's piling up in Southern California and Los Angeles. The rest of the country is getting poorer and poorer and poorer. And the population is becoming increasingly desperate. And that's what's happening. That's the United States. It is the exact opposite of 21st century socialism. But we have a problem in the United States. We have a very big problem in the United States. Because the situation in the United States should seem pretty obvious. Should seem pretty obvious. Writing it down. Should seem pretty obvious. But right now in the United States, what is needed is an alliance between the small business owners and the working class against the oligarchy. That's what's needed. Just like in the Soviet Union, you had a revolutionary, you had a call for a revolutionary dictatorship of the workers and peasants, right? Just like in China, you had your block of four classes against the imperialists. United States, what's needed now is a government of action that will fight for working families. We need an alliance of small business owners and workers, the working class and the small business owners teaming up to demand and fight for a government that fights for them against the oligarchy. That is what is needed. That is what we need in the United States right now. We need a government of action that will fight for working families. That's what we need. And that government would work to make life better for the working class. And that government would work to make life better for the small business owners. And the result would be the country prospering at the expense of the oligarchy. That's not what we have in the United States right now. We have the oligarchy dominating both political parties. At the end of the day, the policies of the Trump administration, the Biden administration, the Obama administration, the Bush administration, those are the policies. Those are policies that serve the oligarchy. And they wage wars to enrich the oligarchy. They make the country poorer. They let the infrastructure of the United States crumble to serve the oligarchy. The country's getting poorer overall. Meanwhile, the oligarchy is getting wealthier. So at the same time that we have a government that basically serves the oligarchy, on the fringes of both parties, we have people that are ideologically, at least, at odds with the oligarchy. On the fringe of the Democratic Party, you've got socialists. And socialists don't believe in oligarchy. Socialists want working class power. They are opposed to the big corporations and the, and the rich. Uh, and the banks, and they're fighting for the working class. Right? The labor movement was originally built by socialists. That's in the Democratic Party. In the Republican Party, on the fringes of it, you have libertarians, libertarian elements. And those libertarian elements aren't supposed to be for the oligarchy. They're supposed to be for the small business owner, 
for the little guy who's just trying to get ahead and start his own business and, and believes in growth and believes in the American dream. That's who they're supposed to be for. But the Republican Party doesn't really serve small business owners. It doesn't serve ranchers out in, out in Texas or in Colorado. It doesn't serve them. It serves the big, big monopolies, right? Writing it down. That's who it serves. So what do we have? We have on the fringes of the Republican Party, we have small business owners, libertarians, fanatical free marketeers. Who go out and fight the left. Right? That's the militia movement. That's the Proud Boys. That's the Alex Jones folks. That's a lot of the people who stormed the Capitol for Trump. A lot of those are small business owners, people from that middle class being mobilized to fight for the Republicans. In the Democratic Party, we have the working class, labor movement, anti-police brutality activists, Progressive folks, communists, socialists, anarchists. What do they do? Well, they go out. They go out to fight the Republicans. That's the situation we have. We have the fringe of the Democratic Party that are being used and taken advantage of to serve the oligarchy, being used as the foot soldiers to fight the Republicans. We have the fringe of the Republican Party, the libertarians, the small business owners, being used as foot soldiers to fight the Democrats. And the oligarchy sits up there and laughs. And every so often, they give a bone to one side. Every so often. They might be forced to raise the minimum wage. They might be forced to you know, deregulate in a, in a way that is favorable to small business owners. They might be forced to give a tax credit to small business owners. They might be forced to increase social programs here. But at the end of the day, things are getting progressively worse for the small business owners. Things are getting progressively worse for the working class. And the most radical sections and politicized sections of the working class go out and fight the Republicans. And the most radical sections of the, middle, of, of the middle class go out and fight the Democrats. Meanwhile, the oligarchy stays up at the top and laughs about it. That's the situation we've got right now in the United States. Now, this isn't the classical Marxist narrative. The classical Marxist narrative is the working class versus the capitalist class. Well, in the age of imperialism, <clears throat> you have ultra-monopolies and banks and corporations, and you have the rest of society, right? In, in, a, in, a, in China, they had the whole the block of four classes. 
the block of four classes that were against the imperialists. In Russia, they had the revolutionary dictatorship of the workers and peasants. And the, the classes that would benefit from overthrowing imperialism in the United States are at odds with each other. While the imperialists win no matter what. One section of the imperialists uses the libertarians and the, the radical right as their foot soldiers. One section of the imperialists uses the far left and the communists and the labor movement as their foot soldiers. But at the end of the day, <clears throat> end of the day, the oligarchy wins. All right, let me see about this. Feels using <clears throat> using one tragedy to bring attention to another. Um, to another. What about ism? Well, what we desperately need to do is we need to change this. We need to repolarize the United States because the United States is polarizing very, very rapidly right now with the Kyle Rittenhouse situation. Half the country hated him. Half the country thinks he's a hero. And it's a dangerous polarization. With Trump in January 6th, again, half the country thought Trump was a legitimate president. The other half hated Donald Trump. This is a dangerous situation. The polarization that is taking place in the United States right now is a recipe for disaster. If the Republicans win, we get screwed. If the Democrats win, we get screwed. And it leads to a lot of working class people fighting other working class people and the oligarchy enriching itself even wealthier. If the people in the red states get poorer, that doesn't really benefit the people in the blue states. If the people in the blue states get poorer, it doesn't really benefit the people in the red states. There's an old device they used to call a whipsaw. It was a saw. And it was held by two people. There'd be one guy on one side, one guy on another. And when one guy's pushing, the other guy's pulling. When the other guy's pulling, the other guy's pushing. That's what the ruling class has done with the working people of the United States. They've whipsawed the working class. We're pushing and pulling and pushing and pulling. They've convinced us that one section of the population, you can only gain at the expense of the other guy. And the other one say, oh, you can only gain at the expense of the other one. And you've got to go and be our foot soldiers against this other section of society. And you've got to go be our foot soldiers against this other section of society. The middle class, have got to be the foot soldiers of big capital against the workers. The workers have got to be the foot soldiers of big capital against the middle class. That's the game that they've run but it doesn't really match with the ultimate interests. It is in the interests of the working class in the United States to get rid of imperialism. It is in the interests of the small business owners of the United States to get rid of imperialism. And a 21st century socialist government in the United States, a government of action that fought for working families, would benefit the working class and it would benefit small business owners. And it would kick the ass of the oligarchy. Right now, we have a government that kicks the ass of the working class, kicks the ass of the middle class, and benefits and serves the oligarchy. And we need to reverse this polarization. 
That is what is desperately needed, is an end to this polarization. We need to repolarize. We need the working class and the middle class to enter an alliance against the oligarchy. We need to repolarize the political discourse in the United States so that the productive classes, the working class and the small business owners are standing arm in arm against the oligarchy. That is the only way, the only way we can get out of this situation. The only hope for the United States is a repolarization. A repolarization, which the middle class and the working class stand arm in arm against the oligarchy. We have to repolarize political discourse. That's why I am so sick of hearing about how Donald Trump is a fascist and Donald Trump is a racist and Donald Trump supporters are. All, I'm sick of it. There's truth in it. Donald Trump is racist. Donald Trump was reprehensible in many ways. But you know what? Joe Biden's reprehensible. Kamala Harris is rep reprehensible. And you're not doing any favors by reinforcing the polarization that we're seeing right now. It's a trap. Right? Isn't that in Star Wars? It's a trap. It's a trap. It's a trap, folks. It's a trap. It's a trap. It's a trap. It's a trap. The polarization that the ruling class is carrying out on the United States right now is a trap. And if you're going around shouting, you know, you know, Joe Biden's a commie, you're going around shouting, Donald Trump's a Nazi, you're doing that, you are reinforcing the trap. You are reinforcing the trap. You're stuck on the whipsaw. And it's going to get worse. Our job as communists in the United States is to repolarize. And I am convinced there is only one way to do that. And the way we can bring about this repolarization is with demands. It's with a program. It's with policy solutions. We need to develop policy solutions that come at the expense of the oligarchy and would benefit the working class and the middle class. That's what we need to do. We need to develop real policy solutions that would benefit the working class and benefit the middle class. That's what we need to do. And that's what the Center for Political Innovation aims to do, to put forward economic policy solutions that would make life better for American workers, would make life better for American small business owners. All right. <coughs> Writing it down but would come at the expense of the oligarchy. And we need to mobilize society around real economic demands, real economic demands, real economic demands that would benefit society overall, but would come at the expense of the oligarchy. That's the only way out of this trap, is to repolarize political discourse. And if you're somebody who thinks that Donald Trump is a big, you know, big fat Nazi and we got to do everything to defeat Donald Trump, 
you're not going to like to hear that. And if you're somebody on the right and you think that Joe Biden's a communist and, and, and you know, we got to do everything to protect Trump, and then you don't want to hear that. But I'm telling you, we got to cut through the, the political drama. We got to cut through the political theater, the politics of personalities. <clears throat> we have to develop real policy solutions. And we have to win people to those policy solutions. And we, in the Center for Political Innovation, have developed an economic program. Right? The first thing would be rebuilding the country, a national program to build infrastructure, a mobilization of the population to rebuild the United States. And that would benefit the working class because it would involve hiring the unemployed, paying them decent wages to go do work that would benefit the communities, the countries with, that they live in. Kurt F., thank you. Thank you, Kurt F. It would benefit the working class immensely. Millions of them would get hired. And their communities they live in would have new roads and new power plants and new water treatment facilities and new high-speed railway access. It would benefit the working class. And it would benefit the small business owners. People would drive to the stores that they, have, they own on better roads. People would have better access to come to the communities where they're located. It would be working people would have more money to spend because they've been hired. You lay the basis of the economy with infrastructure, the whole economy flourishes. Small business owners would also benefit from that. Step number two, public control of oil and natural gas. Right? The people who get rich from America's oil are big monopolies, big Wall Street corporations get rich from fracking, get rich from oil, get rich from coal and timber. But imagine if the money from America's natural resources was actually going back into the communities throughout this country where it's extracted from. Imagine that if towns and communities throughout the country were having more money go into their public budget from oil and natural gas and coal and timber, if our natural resources were the wealth of them not being sucked up into the oligarchy, but actually going into the productive economy of communities throughout the country, that would be very good for the working class, It'd be very good for the middle class, but it wouldn't be good for the oligarchy because that's how they make their profits. They own the big energy corporations. It would come at the expense of the oligarchy, but it would benefit the actual communities. Step number three, public control of banking. Again, well, how do the oligarchy, how do they dominate the economy? Well, they, they lend the money. They are the bankers. But imagine that money was lent strategically for the good of the community. If money was lent strategically for the good of the community, small business owners could go to the community. They could get money to start their business. Working people who wanted to buy a new house could go to the community and get a loan to buy their house. And money would be strategically lent and credit would be strategically assigned by the state in the interest of building up the economy overall. And that would be good for small business owners. That would be good for the working class. And then an economic bill of rights. People all had health care. People all had education. People had jobs. All of that would lead to people having more money. People spending more money. People having more economic opportunity. Our four-point program would be good 
for the middle class. It would be good for the working class, but it would come at the expense of the oligarchy. And we talk about the Sandino-Zapata Economic Corridor, a program of development where the United States teams up with Mexico and Nicaragua and China to bring economic development to the regions of Central America that are deeply impoverished. Stop the, you know, the crisis of people fleeing on our border. That would be very beneficial. Lots of small business owners could get in on that and make lots of money. Lots of working people could get hired to be part of the Sandino-Zapata economic corridor. We could stop the crisis of mass migration. We could bring stability to the Southwest of the United States. Same time, a lot of people could make a lot of money. A lot of people could get jobs. The Sandino-Zapata economic corridor would be good for the working class. And it would be good for the middle class. Fusion City a huge facility combining all the great work around fusion energy would be great for the middle class and it would be great for the working class. An emergency program to get fusion energy to overcome fossil fuels as quickly as possible would be great. It'd be great for everybody, but not for the oligarchy that makes their money from the fossil fuel monopoly. It would put the oligarchy out of business. This is what we need. We need to repolarize U.S. society. We need the middle class and the working class to stop being used as foot soldiers against each other for the oligarchy. And instead, we need the working class and the middle class to have a common economic interest against the oligarchy. And the way to do that is to develop policy solutions, things that people can actually see being implemented and go around and mobilize people to demand those economic policies. That is the solution. That's the solution. And folks, I got to tell you, if, you're, if you are reinforcing, you're reinforcing the polarization that we're experiencing right now. I don't care if you're right. I, I do not care if you're right or wrong. I really don't care. I really don't care if you're right or wrong. You know, I mean, you can be like, but I'm right. Good for you. Good for you. I'm sure you think you're right. Right? Australia far right is using the crisis to fill the void. <coughs> fill the void. Um, thank you, David. I'm sure you believe you're right. No matter what your position is, I'm sure that you believe you're right. It doesn't matter if you're right or wrong, right? If you're, you're right about Kyle Rittenhouse, you're right about vaccines, you're right about this, you're right about that, doesn't matter. I don't care. This isn't an issue about whether you're right or wrong, okay? I have my position on issues. I, you have your position. We may agree, we may disagree. But if you are, in, if I was on here screaming about how much I hated Donald Trump, screaming about how dumb Republicans are, I would be wasting my time. I would not be making any contribution. I was on here screaming, screaming about how Donald Trump was a great leader and the election was stolen and Biden's a commie and a socialist. I'd be wasting your time. Anyone who you hear reinforcing this polarization is not helping. We got to repolarize. This polarization is the road to destruction. 
The only way out of the crisis is repolarization. If you're on here screaming against Trump, if you're on here screaming against Biden, you're on here screaming against the right, if you're on here screaming against the left, you're on here screaming against the Proud Boys, you're on here screaming about Antifa, you're not helping. If you're on here screaming against the Proud Boys, well, you're CNN. If you're on here screaming against Antifa, you're Fox News, okay? You might be saying right things while you do it, but it doesn't change anything. And CNN, look, I mean, if you're screaming against Antifa, Fox News can do that way better than you can. They've got a way bigger audience. If you're on here screaming against CNN or screaming against, uh, against the Proud Boys, screaming against Trump, CNN can do that way better than you can. They have a bigger audience. You're not really accomplishing anything by doing that. But if you can stand up to this polarization, you can demand a repolarization around an economic program that would benefit the country overall, you're making a contribution. And your voice is your weapon. And especially in the age of social media, your voice is your weapon. Your voice is your weapon. And with great power comes great responsibility. And if you use your voice to repolarize the country, to move toward uniting the middle class and the working class against the oligarchy, you're making a contribution. And if you use your voice to reinforce the polarization that the oligarchy has set up, you are not making a contribution. You're actually part of the problem. We need to do everything in our power to repolarize the conversation. Repolarization. That is the way forward. Policy solutions are the way to do it. We need a government of action that will fight for working families. That's my, my opening message for you tonight. I hope that you appreciate it. I hope it was useful. <clears throat> names and locations. Names and locations. I will call you out as I see you. Names and locations. Who's with us here tonight? Names and locations. I will call you out as I see you, and then I'll start answering super chats. Names and locations. Who's here? Who's here? Uh, JT24 says, fantastic. Um, you know, uh, Gabby says, being poor my whole life, I understand the far right more. That's interesting. Calvin from Saskatoon. Zachary B. from Richmond, Virginia. Danny in Illinois. Space communist. Montreal. Chaya, good friend of the program. Char Char Darling. Emoji from Seattle. Shout out to you, Char Char Darling. Good friend of the program. Calgary, Canada. Springfield, Missouri. Kurt in Hawaii. Pirate Alex Cleveland. Clyde Bank. JT24 in Mississippi. East of LA, California. Bendigo, Australia. Arturo in Alaska. Greenville, South Carolina. St. David's, Bermuda. David in China. Bob Troy in New York. Simon in Toronto. Ash in Chicago. Joey of the John Brown Volunteers. Shout out to you, Joey. Neil Frazier in Hong Kong, China. Shout out to you, Neil. Rees in Adelaide, Australia. Chrissy Cruz from Glendale, California. Harold Sullivan in Florida. Marta in Poland. Seattle. Theo in the Rust Belt. Michael Rostarucci in Ithaca, New York. Io Hillary in New York City. Shout out to you, Io. Mindanao to Midwest. Olympia Logic. Shout out to you. Northern Michigan. Chris from Korea. Detroit. Gabby in Chicago. Duluth. Minnesota, Jason Hunt, Smedley, uh, Kieran from San Diego, uh, Anthony Penza, not Pirate Alex, but the other guy in Cleveland. Very good, Anthony. 
Uh, Auckland, New Zealand, Judas in Massachusetts, Mike in North Carolina, John McCarthy in Chicago. I think, John, you're a good friend of ours, so you can be a mod. Uh, San Quentin Valley, California, Tulare, Leo and Mimi from Puebla, Mexico, Marxist Jabaro from Nevada, welcome, Dregs in Cuba, Texas, Hamilton, Ontario, West Virginia, Maple in Chapel Hill, Moe in Toronto. Um, so there you go. Uh, very, very good. Um, Nazar from Covina, California, Trezor Coast, Florida, Vinicius from Brazil, Duluth, Minnesota, North Carolina, Yaya in Omaha, Joe the Red, Joe Gale in Nassau County. Shout out to you. Um, there you go. Very, very good. Joe Gale is a good friend. Happy birthday to you, by the way, Joel. I'm, uh, Joe, I'm sorry I was sick for your birthday. We will get together this week if you want. Joe and I go way back, by the way. Joe is so awesome. You know how awesome Joe is. I think I first met Joe in 2015, and we've been we've been thick as thieves ever since, as they say. Pawtucket, Rhode Island, Old Dog, Glendale, California, Bristol, Wisconsin, Allen in Chicago, Western Pennsylvania, USA, Micah in Las Vegas, Glasgow. <coughs> Good stuff, folks. Good stuff. All right. Um, Jorge from Mexico. All right. Very, very good. All right. Um, Chase in Texas. All righty. Well, um, so now I'm just going to start answering super chats. So if you have more super chats, now would be the time uh, to send them in because I'm going to start answering your super chats. Uh, the media painting China as reactionary and not woke. Well, here's the thing, all right? Uh, the Chinese Communist Party uh, has evolved over the years. Um, you know, uh, during the nineteen during the nineteen fifties, uh, the Chinese Communist Party was pretty much in the main line of communism globally, right? It was a straight up ML Marxist Leninist party. Then, in the nineteen sixties, uh, you had the Sino Soviet split, uh, and the Chinese Communist Party broke with the Communist Party of the Soviet Union. Um, and at the point that the Chinese Communist Party <coughs> broke with the Chi Communist Party of the Soviet Union, they began to veer in what you might call ultra-left uh, directions. Uh, at that point, um, you know, they started to, um, you know, they started to, you know, argue, for example, that China could achieve full communism in poverty. Um, and, you know, during the Cultural Revolution in China, after the Sino-Soviet split, they became kind of an ultra-leftist party. Um, and they tried to purge Chinese society of all remnants of old civilizations, including Confucius, you know, Confucian, Confucius, um, right? Expansion of CPI in the next couple of years. Uh, Confucius. Uh, Confucius is considered the father of Chinese civilization. Um, and... You know, they had in the early 1970s, the criticized Lin Biao, criticized Confucius campaign, where they, they took Confucius's writings out and burned them. And they tried to erase Confucius, the father of Chinese civilization. Um, they tried to mobilize young people against their parents. Uh, they tried to mobilize students against their teachers. It was a state of all-out rebellion. And it was largely uh, not focusing on economic development. They argued that they could um, that they could somehow build a purely communist society, despite the fact that China wasn't even fully industrialized at that point. Most of the people in China at that point didn't have running water and electricity. Outside of the cities, people were still in extreme conditions of poverty. <coughs> but they argued that, uh, well, they could, they could build a purely communist society on the basis of just kind of inspiring people to rebel. Didn't work out too well. So in the 1980s, you had Deng Xiaoping, 
the reform and opening up. And now with the rise of Xi Jinping, um, you know, you have you have China in an interesting situation where on the one hand, communism is more popular than ever. Marxist ideology is being widely studied. President Xi Jinping is quoting Marx and Mao and his writings. He gave a great speech for the 200th anniversary of Mao Zedong, and he's he's definitely a communist. He's speaking in much more communist language than any Chinese president has since Deng Xiaoping. Um, but there's also a revival of traditional Chinese culture. Now, there's a revival of Confucianism. There's a revival of of different aspects of traditional Chinese society, and that you know that China, on the one hand, it's having a Marxist revival. On the other hand, it's having kind of a traditionalist revival, and that the left and the right in China kind of walk hand in hand in what makes China not Western and not, not part of the global capitalist economy. They're part of China's unique identity against the West. Um, so there are going to be aspects of China that are going to be, quote unquote, not woke. Now, I, I, I think there's a lot, of, a lot of things that have been exaggerated. I know U.S. media was claiming that China erased a black person from a movie poster trying to say China was racist. That was debunked. That that was proven to not be true. Um, you know, there's the Uyghur stuff. There's a lot of, you know, facts that have come out. So on the one hand, on the one hand, uh, we are seeing, you know, lies in U.S. media. But on the other hand, there's some truth in that, that that at the same time that we're seeing a revival of, of communist ideas in China, we're also seeing a revival of traditionalism in China. Um, and that's happening. So there you go. All right. Next question. Um, the patriotism of the old CPUSA versus the patriotism of the left today. Well, um, you know, the Communist Party USA during the 1930s, during the Popular Front, starting in 1935 up until World War II, they really emphasized patriotism. And, you know, they have, you know, ever since then, that's been a big part of you know, the Communist Party's perspective. I mean, they, they that was kind of their trademark. I remember years ago, I was sitting in a restaurant, um, you know, with some communists and there was a picture of George Washington on the wall. And one of my older communist friends said, why is there's a picture of George Washington on the wall? And someone jokingly said, because he's the father of our country. And I said, well, maybe we're just at the Communist Party office. And that was, that was a joke, but it was like, that was their trademark. Socialist patriotism was the trademark of the Communist Party USA. For years, the Communist Party used to have Jefferson bookstores. Did you know this? They used to have bookstores that were named after Thomas Jefferson. Uh, they had a training school, a national training school in New York City, near Union Square. It was called the Jefferson School after Thomas Jefferson. Like they invented this stuff, socialist patriotism, right? Earl Browder, Earl Browder was leader of the Communist Party during the Popular Front, and he would say, if Jefferson and Lincoln and Washington were alive today, they would be members of the Communist Party. Um, you know, uh, you know, they, they invented this. Um, but they made some mistakes in the process of inventing it. Um, one of the biggest mistakes they made was that if you read Earl Browder's writings, uh, Earl Browder came up with a formulation called the Hamiltonian Counter-Revolution. And uh, they basically argued that Alexander Hamilton was reactionary and that Thomas Jefferson was progressive, uh, that Thomas Jefferson, who fought for the small farmers, was progressive and that Alexander Hamilton, because he, you know, he believed in statecraft and he was, you know, friendly with a lot of bankers, which he was, uh, that Alexander Hamilton was reactionary and they were wrong. 
And now you'll notice that uh, that, that has been reversed. Uh, Christian Parenti, the son of Michael Parenti, wrote a book called Radical Hamilton. There's a Broadway musical that's considered to be very woke. It's about Alexander Hamilton. And now leftists in the United States, volunteerism, leftists in the United States largely, um, you know, largely believe that um, that Hamilton was the progressive and Jefferson was the reactionary. And I think they're right. Hamilton was against slavery, 100%. Thomas Jefferson was kind of against slavery. He freed all his slaves when he died, but he also raped one of his sla slaves and impregnated her. And he was all about the, you know, the small planter. And in, 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 you know, the founding, you know, the politics of the founding of the United States, he was often aligning with the slave owners. Hamilton, on the other hand, not only was he against slavery, but he wanted to recognize the Haitian slave government. And furthermore, he believed in infrastructure. He had the United States build lighthouses. Uh, they had, he built lighthouses up and down the United States. He created a national bank, a state-run bank, that built lighthouses up and down the United States. And uh, so when Earl Browder and, you know, William C. Foster and others talked about the Hamiltonian counter-revolution and they portrayed Thomas Jefferson as the progressive, they were wrong. They were absolutely wrong. Hamilton was the progressive. Jefferson was the reactionary. Jefferson was aligned with the slave owners. He engaged in demagogy about the yeomen and the, the small farmers. Um, but he was not progressive. Hamilton was progressive. Hamilton was aligned, uh, you know, with business owners, but Hamilton largely wanted the economy of the United States to flourish, and he believed in the state doing it, uh, you know, and that, you know, look, I am not into the American, what is it, the American system versus the British system, that narrative of American system versus British system, that's not my school of thought, right? There's, there's you know, Henry Carey, Henry Carey, and um, who is it, Henry Carey, and uh, and uh, Alexander Hamilton and um, Henry Clay and Friedrich List of Germany. That is a school of thought. That is an economic school of thought um, that's been around for a long time. I know Lyndon LaRouche and the LaRouche people have really promoted it. That's not my perspective. I'm a Marxist, right? I'm not a Hamiltonian, um, you know, but in comparison, Hamilton was more progressive. You have to argue that. Hamilton was clearly far more progressive than Jefferson. And it was a big mistake. And everybody recognizes this that now from Christian Parenti to, you know, I mean, Jacobin, basically everybody. I mean, everyone who's remotely progressive in the United States kind of has reversed, right? The Jeffersonian narrative, it was a big mistake, right? And, um, you know, uh, so there you go. That's probably one of the biggest shifts we've seen uh, is that the, the patriotism of the old Communist Party the narrative that they had supporting Jefferson against Hamilton, uh, that narrative, nobody believes that anymore. The Communist Party doesn't believe that. Uh, they, nobody believes that, as far as I can tell. You know, generally, uh, that's been reversed. And um, <coughs> the other thing that I would say that has changed um, is that um, I would argue that the the socialist patriotism of the of the 1930s CPUSA uh, was a little bit a little bit white, I would argue. It wasn't multiracial the way it should have been. I mean, the Communist Party was more advanced on the race question than any other group. They were always a champion of African American rights, but in a lot of ways, their narrative about 
you know, being for the common man was a little bit white. It was, it was, you know, they didn't quite acknowledge, they didn't quite acknowledge um, the experience of African-Americans, the experiments, the experiments, uh, the experience of Latinos and Asian-American folks. They didn't, they didn't acknowledge that as much as we would now. And it was very much, you know, I mean, they talked about this. I mean, uh, one story I heard many, many times was that Sam Marcy, the founder of the Workers' World Party, uh, you know, he was Jewish. He was from Ukraine. He was born in Ukraine. He grew up speaking Russian in his household. English was his second language. Um, and the Communist Party discriminated against him uh, because of that. Now, uh, the Communist Party, even though it was largely a party of immigrants, largely a party of people who English was not their first language, it was the party of black people. It was a party of, had a lot of Asian American members, had a lot of Latino members, um, but because of the fact that they were always accused of being foreign agents, they're always accused of being un-American, they really bent over backwards to pick white dudes who were born in the United States to be their leaders. Um, they picked William Z. Foster and Gus Hall and Earl Browder because they were white dudes from the United States, right? Earl Browder was a farmer from Kansas. In fact, his nickname his campaign nickname was The Man from Kansas. They even wrote a theme song for his campaign, The Man from Kansas. Gus Hall, uh, Gus Hall was from Minnesota, from the Iron Range. Uh, you know, uh, you know, William C. Foster was an Irish, Irish American uh, from, you know, grew up in Philadelphia, was actually born in, in Pennsylvania, or was actually born in um, Massachusetts, uh, but you know, that's that's where he's from. And that um you know, that they, the Communist Party was always trying to portray itself because it was always attacked as being a foreign-born party. A lot of times they, they kind of went over the top with it. Uh, they went over the top to be, you know, a party of white guys. And, you know, that was a mistake. Um, at the time, it might have made sense. Um, but nowadays, you wouldn't do that. Nowadays, you would do the opposite. You would, you would work very hard to be inclusive. You would work very hard to have people of color represented in your organization. You'd work very hard to have women represented in your organization. You, you would do the opposite, right? You wouldn't be bending over backwards to be a party of white dudes who were born in America. You'd be bending over backwards to, to show that you're a party of inclusion. Now, you know, there are obviously examples of the left going to ridiculous extremes with that, and we're not for that. Um, but, you know, that, that patriotism of the old CPUSA kind of, you know, led to them doing the opposite of what conscious progressive forces should do, right? And that's why Sam Marcy apparently was very bitter about this his whole life because, because of the fact he was Jewish, because of the fact that he was from Ukraine and he didn't grow up speaking English, uh, the Communist Party didn't make him a national leader. And he was a genius. He was a very smart guy. He was a very good organizer. He understood Marxism a lot. And he resented that his whole life. His whole life, he resented the Communist Party for discriminating against him, essentially. That's his version of events. Now, um, you know, I never met Sam Marcy. I don't represent him. I'm not a Marcyite, but that is one anecdote I was told. One thing about the, the Sam Marcy tradition, the Workers' World Party tradition, that infuriated me, it still infuriates me, even though I'm not part of it anymore. It infuriates me, um, you know, uh, one thing that infuriates me is that, uh, that, that a lot of it is an oral tradition. Very little of what, you know, Sam Marcy taught is written down. And he died. And it's all this kind of word of mouth oral tradition, right? The Workers' World Party, they can't explain to you how they're Trotskyites. And they are. They think they're Trotskyites. They maintain that they're Trotskyites. But to be a real Trotskyite, you never talk about Trotsky. You never quote Trotsky, whatever. You know, I'm writing it down, by the way. 
You know, uh, that's what they maintain, that they're true Trotskyites. But there's no book you can ever find of them explaining why they're Trotskyites. All the other Trotskyites call them Stalinists, say they're a bunch of Stalinists and tankies. But in their minds, they're the true Trotskyists, and they can't tell you how. Because Sam Marcy understood how, but he died. And there's no document written down anywhere. There's no audio speech ever. Who the hell knows why they're the true Trotskyites? Nobody knows because it was an oral tradition and they are, they are because Sam Marcy said so and that's it. And it's really fucking sad. And that's part of the problem. And that's why, that's one of the problem of cults of personality. Cults of personality, when, when a party is, you know, revolves around one person's personality, a lot of times when that person dies or that person gets old, you know, it's lost. Well, you know, and that's, you know, Sam Marcy's disagreement with the CPUSA. That's something I heard secondhand. I heard it from people who heard it from him. And honestly, it might have been people heard it from him and then this person heard it from them. And so I may be completely misrepresenting it here. I might be giving a complete misrepresentation of Sam Marcy's ideas here. I may have it completely wrong. But this is what I understood when I was told it by somebody who did meet Sam Marcy and knew Sam Marcy. And maybe I'm getting it wrong through the broken telephone here. And that's the problem with cults of personality. And that's the problem with the oral tradition. Sam Marcy should have written a book explaining why he was the one true Trotskyite in the world. I, he should have, but he didn't, right? Um, he probably didn't want to put it into writing because it would probably alienate, you know, parties that, that the Workers' World Party was friendly to around the world, like the party, the Workers' Party of Korea, like the Chinese, uh, like the, the Vietnamese Communist Party and others, you know, they probably didn't want to be associating with Trotskyites. And so it was never written down. I have no clue, right? I mean, and I was in the group and I, you know, I mean, whatever. So I'm just telling you, but um, but there, there you go. That was an odd tangent to go on. But if you want to learn about Sam Marcy, I made a podcast, The Legend of Sam Marcy. You know, if you're a tanky in the United States, you're a communist who defends existing socialist countries, uh, you're going to come across the influence of Sam Marcy. Sam Marcy was probably the most important tanky uh, of of U.S. history. I mean, you could argue Gus Hall was more important, but Gus Hall was a little bit different because he was explicitly aligned with the Soviet Union. But, you know, the Party of Socialism and Liberation, uh, the, the Answer Coalition, uh, you know, all every big national protest in Washington, D.C., you know, U.S. support for El Salvador, U.S. support for Nicaragua, U.S., you know, the, the main party that's aligned with North Korea. I mean, I'm sorry, the Marcyite tradition, the Sam Marcy tradition, is really important. And I come out of that tradition, but I don't agree with it. I think Sam Marcy was dead wrong on a number of points. But if you want to know about it, um, I made a podcast on the history of Marcyism and who Sam Marcy was and my understanding of his teachings. I talk about where I disagree with him. I'd encourage you to check it out. You know, go go watch my podcast, The Legend of Sam Marcy, uh, because Marcyism is, you know, it's it's a big current in the United States among tankies. It's highly influential among MLs in the United States. I mean, there's no ML in the United States who hasn't come into contact with Marcyites to some degree or other. They are important current. And right now, Marcyism is collapsing. And the Workers' World Party has collapsed. Um, they, you know, there, there's barely anything left. Um, you know, there's the... Uh, there's, there's a breakaway called the Socialist Unity Party. There's a breakaway called the Communist Workers League in Detroit. And then there's the PSL, the Party of Socialism and Liberation, which is a 
a big force to be reckoned with. They're certainly, they're certainly a substantial force among tiny communist groups in the United States. They're irrelevant in terms of U.S. national politics, but they are relevant in the world of leftists and people who go to rallies. They're a big deal in the movement. You want to know about all of that, um, you know, Sam Marcy. That's who you should check out. Go check out my podcast, The Legend of Sam Marcy. Thanks for putting it in the chat, Space Communist. I appreciate it. <clears throat> all right. My voice is starting to fade here. Maybe I wasn't as well as I thought I was, but I'm going to keep going. This person says they're forming homeless aid organization. It's called Mass Mutual Aid and then two S words. I don't know what that last one you invent, that last word you had there is, but good for you. We need people to aid the homeless, aiding people. That's good for the community. It's good for society overall. And there's going to be a lot of people homeless, right? A lot of people outcast and starving amid the breakdown of capitalism. And community aid to those people is very important. Um, will 20th, 20th century planning return with the rise of artificial intelligence? I think possibly, you know, the utilization of computers in central planning and socialism is very much a possibility. There's a very good chance of that happening. Um, and as we, you know, as we move to a higher stage of abundance, um, you know, as, you know, the reason that a lot of these socialist countries needed to utilize the market sector was because of that stagnation. But as, you know, China is at a higher level of abundance and they're, you know, reasserting state control in various areas, maybe they'll start using artificial intelligence to plan things out. I think that's very possible. All right. All right. Uh, text on the origin of the state besides Engels. Um, well, I would recommend Lenin's book, The State and Revolution. That's all about the Marxist theory of the state. Michael Parenti wrote a very, very good book called, I think it was called Power and the Powerless. Um, loved your passionate sidekicks and Nika. Oh, they're great folks. They're great. The John Brown volunteers are amazing folks. Um, Michael Parenti wrote a book called Democracy for the Few. I wrote another one called Power and the Powerless. Um, you know, basically any, any political science book will, will help you understand that. So there you go. All righty. Um, uh, things are getting better in rural America, someone argues. I, I don't, I think statistics don't show that, my friend. I, I guess that's your observation, but yeah, you know, you know, things are getting worse in rural America. You know, Biden is pushing this build back better plan, but it's, I mean, you know, it's, it's been so watered down and it hasn't happened yet. Things are getting worse in terms of infrastructure in the United States. <coughs> things are getting worse. I, I don't see it. Um, don't business owners exploit workers? Yes. Yes, they do. And that's one thing that, you know, that, you know, the small business owners, you know, labor, first of all, needs to realize that its main enemy is big monopolies like Amazon, right? The biggest enemy of labor is Walmart and Amazon and Home Depot and big monopolies. That's who's really, and McDonald's, right? The fast food chains, right? Small business owners are not the ones who are being, you know, the most vicious to the workers. It's those ultra monopolies, Starbucks with their clopenings, right? But yes, Small business owners do exploit their workers very badly. That happens. There are small business owners that are vicious to their workers, and that needs to be opposed. But small business owners have a common interest with labor against the big monopolies. You know, small town bookstores, they might be mean to their workers, but when the union goes out to unionize Amazon, they should be on the same side and wanting to kick Amazon's ass. Small town bookstores, right? Uh, you know, the small town restaurant, sure, it might exploit its workers, but McDonald's uh, and McDonald's has the same interest as that small town restaurant 
or I'm sorry, the McDonald's workers had the same interests as, as that restaurant and going up against the, the Kroc family and the McDonald's enterprise. And also, if McDonald's is forced to treat its workers better, that creates an atmosphere that will enable the small business owner to treat its workers better, right? If McDonald's is forced to pay its workers a better wage, well, then that'll lead to a situation where that small business owner is going to have to pay his workers a better wage, right? All right. What's the difference between John Brown volunteers versus CPI? All right. All right, so there you go. So there you go. So there is a common interest between small business owners and the labor movement. Um, I meant Nicaragua, ha, 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 not the, I, I don't know what that means. Okay. All right. All right. Um, what What about this whataboutism, uh, which when, when one tragedy is used to bring attention to another, what's well, one thing that, that happens, right? So, you know, I'm trying to think of an example. Police, police brutally murder um, you know, a white person, and they say, oh, it would have been worse if he was black. That's true. That's absolutely true. Police are far harder on black people than they are on white people. Don't deny it. They are. But by saying that, what are you saying? I mean, do you wish the police would have been harder on the white guy? No, right? We shouldn't want the police to be hard on the white guy or the black guy. We should want everyone's rights to be respected, right? Um, that's on property taxes that are too expensive, right? Um, you know, and, and there's many examples of this, you know, during Occupy Wall Street, that was one thing that was said many times was, oh, you know, Occupy Wall Street was mainly white people. If it had been black people that had, had marched on Wall Street, the police would have come and kicked their ass on the first day. That might be true. And it probably is. Does that mean that the Occupy Wall Street protesters shouldn't have done that? So should we not have had a protest movement against Wall Street because it's easier for white people than black people? And that's, that's not logical. Right? That's not logical. Right? And that sometimes this whataboutism, I think this is what the person who's, it leads to, it's like, okay, you might be right. You might have a point. But so what? Okay. I get it. Right? We're recognizing that some people are treated better than others, that some people have a more comfortable lifestyle. So we recognize it. Okay. And from there, what? And then, and then how do we make things better? Well, we don't. We just get mad and bitter and resentful. It's like, okay, all right. Well, if you want to do that, I can't stop you. You're, you're free to do that, but we're not really advancing things. And that's one thing I do want to say, folks, I don't know how to communicate this. I really don't know how to communicate this, but I just have to say it, um, you know, and I don't know if it'll make any difference, but if you really want to change the world, you don't gain anything by making enemies. And if you're up against the ruling class, you're up against the ruling class, you're up against the imperialists and the big monopolies, you don't gain anything by making enemies. Now, you might need to separate yourself. You might need to make a polemic and disagree. But by making enemies, you don't gain anything. And I mean, I look at the Communist Party right now, and you've all seen the videos and all that. What does the Communist Party gain by making me their enemy? I mean, 
you know, I mean, I what? I mean, now it's one thing, you know, if the Communist Party wants to make clear they disagree with me, fine, right? The Communist Party wants to misrepresent my view, whatever. But I'm somebody who agrees with them about China. I'm somebody who agrees with their amazing history. I'm somebody who agrees with their economic program, largely. What do they gain by making me their enemy? And the same for some other people right now. I mean, there's some other folks, you know, that disagree with me about that, this or that, fine. But what do you gain by making it an all-out, ugly, personal battle? What do you gain? Well, I'll tell you what you gain. You gain social media credit. It gets a lot of attention on social media. And I gain from it because you're talking about me. And you gain from it because I'm fighting with you. And Twitter gains from it. Twitter really gains from it because they're the real you know, beneficiaries of it. But other than that, other than that, does the working class movement gain anything? No. Does the world get any better? No. Right? Right. All right. Undercurrents. On the right. You know, and sorry, if you're really serious about changing the world, you, you should want to make allies. And you know, you disagree with me about this or that, but if you find if there's something we do agree on, you should probably approach me about, okay, well, maybe I don't agree with you about X, Y, and Z, but there's this issue we do agree on. Maybe we could have some common ground around that. You know, that's really how things work. Um, but that's not how social media works, right? In social media, you get more exposure on social media by fighting with people, by attacking people, by exposing them. And at the end of the day, uh, relationships fall apart. You don't know how many friends I've lost over the years from Facebook, right? I mean, not related to anything recently, just historically, right? I have a Facebook argument. And finally, somebody says something and it's just the friendship ends. How many friends have you lost because of social media? You know? Um, you know, I mean, it, it's really, really sad, right? And that it's like, People think that by like fighting with somebody on Facebook, fighting with somebody on Twitter, they're they're getting it done. They're fighting. No, you're not. You're not. And that, you know, this is what the ruling class wants. They want us to lose all of our relationships. They want us to be atomized, isolated individuals. That's what they want. They want us to be atomized, isolated individuals. And if you really want to change the world, you have to do the opposite. You should be building a united front. You should be building a coalition. Look, I mean, if, if the Communist Party can't get along with me, no, and I'm not saying they have to agree with me, but if they can't get along with me, someone who agrees with them about China, the overwhelming majority of people in the United States right now think China is evil. They think China is a, our enemy. It's a totalitarian, blah, 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 social credit, Uyghurs. I want somebody who agrees with them about China. And they can't get along with me. Majority of people in the United States think communism never worked anywhere. It never succeeded. I'm somebody who doesn't think that. And they can't get along with me. I mean, I agree with them on far more than the overwhelming majority of people in the United States agree. Now, we might disagree about Kamala Harris. We might disagree about the Democrats. But compared to 
broader worldview, we're pretty close. But if you can't get along with me, how the hell are you going to get along with an average working class person who thinks China is evil? How are you going to get along with somebody who thinks communism is a stupid idea because you can't share everything equally? It doesn't work. You know, I mean, if you can't get along with me, you know, and also why is that the dividing issue? Isn't that a little bit interesting that they don't so much care, right? There's people walking around the communist party who hate China. There's people walking around the communist party who think communism did fail everywhere it's ever been tried. There's people walking around the communist party who are Trotskyites, who call themselves anarchists, but they agree to vote for Joe Biden. Why is that the issue? That's the issue that they're concerned about. Are you for Biden? Are you for Kamala Harris? Oh, okay, you're good. That's what they're concerned about. That's, that's very disturbing. That should be very disturbing to you. And on top of that, if they think I'm wrong, which they apparently do, why have they not tried to win me to a better position? You can call people names all day long. You can make memes with people's face on them, which official Communist Party accounts made stupid memes with my face on them and shit. At the end of the day, if I'm somebody who's pro-China, somebody who admires your history, I'm somebody who, you know, agrees with you about socialism, and you think it is just a big problem that I'm not supporting Biden, shouldn't you be trying your hardest to convince me to like Biden? What's going on there? What's going on there? You got to ask yourself. I mean, I, I don't know. I'm, I've, I'm so over this. Yeah, I'm done joining parties, mind you. I was in a party for eight years. I was in the Workers' World Party. I was in the Workers' World Party for eight years. I, 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 I am so done with these little parties. Okay, I'm really done with it. I'm building a think tank. I want to put forward policy solutions. I want to teach people about socialism. You want to work in the labor movement? Good for you. That's not what I'm doing. You want to, you know, protest in the street? Good for you. That's not what I'm doing. Um, but, you know, I want to build an educational think tank. That's what I'm willing to do. And that's what I'm doing. And there's people that like my stuff, that are in a variety of different groups. Most of the people in the Center for Political Innovation are not in any group. Um, but that said, uh, that said, I'll just be real with y'all. I'll just be very to the point. You know, why would you want to make an enemy out of me? Right? I mean, compare the numbers on this YouTube channel with the numbers on the Communist Party's YouTube channel, right? They have their Good Morning Revolution show. It's an amazingly exciting show. I mean, it's just the most, I mean, riveting. I mean, you're on the edge of your seat watching Good Morning Revolution. I'm being mean here. I shouldn't do that. But I mean, it's just riveting material. I mean, it's just, I don't know why everyone doesn't watch it. But regardless, compare the numbers, compare the numbers uh, of this YouTube channel with, with theirs. Now, imagine that they could recruit me. I mean, imagine that they could convince me of their line. Would that not benefit things? Imagine that maybe we didn't agree on Biden and Kamala Harris, but we agreed about China 
and they had some kind of event on China and I promoted it here on my YouTube channel, wouldn't that benefit them? You know, the specter of Moppetism looms over them. You represent what they pretend to be and it scares them. Yeah. And that's how you can tell they're not a serious organization. Thank you for that super chat because that was a good way to end this. I could have kept going about this for a while and it's not that important. But honestly, that's really what it gets down to. They're not a serious organization. They're not a serious organization. If they were a serious organization, they would be trying to figure out how to utilize me. Hey, we're back. I don't know. It, it kicked me out of the app. It's so bizarre. So bizarre, but we're back. But anyway, I was finishing up what I was saying. Anyway, we're getting through these super chats. <coughs> hit the like button. Hit the subscribe button. Hit the notifications bell. Here we are. Here we are. Here we are. So there we go. So got some more super chats to get through. Um, it's so annoying. YouTube is so obnoxious in so many ways. But if someone could take the link, if someone can take the link and post it in the old stream, very, very annoying. Very, very, very annoying. Um, but yeah, if someone could take the link and put it in the old stream, I'm going to keep going through these super chats because we got a lot to get through and it's getting late. I got work in the morning, so... All right. Um, the Bolsheviks and the Mensheviks came together in Russia in 1917. Um, not exactly. Uh, during the Russian Revolution, so you had the Bolshevik Party, and they were the anti-war party. <clears throat> and when they, they demanded all power to the Soviets, there was a split in the Menshevik Party. And there was a grouping called the Left Mensheviks that supported the Bolsheviks and supported the Soviet government. The same with the Socialist Revolutionary Party. There was a split in the Socialist Revolutionary Party that split, and they were with the Bolsheviks. Um, and so, yes, in a way it is, right? They unified around the program and that both the Menshevik Party and the Left Socialist Revolutionary Party split to support the Bolsheviks. But you have to remember the bulk of the Menshevik Party didn't support the Bolsheviks. The bulk of the Socialist Revolutionary Party didn't support the Bolsheviks. But yes, there was, at the time of the Russian Revolution, in October of 1917, same time to declare the Soviet government, a big chunk of the Social Demo of the Mensheviks came over to the Bolshevik, you know, aligned with the Bolsheviks, and a big chunk of the left Socialist Revolutionary Party, you know, or the, the Social Revolutionary Party went with the Bolsheviks. Um, so yeah, and it was, you know, and, and it, for, for the first couple of years after the Russian revolution, you had three parties, um, in the Soviet union, they were the, the left Menshevik party, the left social Democrat or the left socialist revolutionary party and the Bolsheviks. Eventually, um, both of those parties became sources of counter-revolution, but yes, they built a united front. And that's one thing that, you know, Lenin was always trying to explain. It's like, it's about putting forward your program and building a united front around your program. So Neil asked the question. Um, and I, I assume that's what he was getting at. And I think he's right, right, that by by using your program, um, that's a way to kind of cut through the party lines and the sectarianism. All right. Um, in Australia, the far right is using the crisis to fill a void, says David Fox. I believe it. That's happening everywhere. As the working as as the left becomes more and more woke and obsessed with cultural issues, uh, the right wing uh, continues to fill a void. And while economics doesn't seem important to the left, um, the right very much appeals to people's economic suffering, and that's really dangerous. It's extremely dangerous. Left is dropping the ball, and, um, you know, there you go. Um, 
expansion of the CPI in the next several years. Well, the next couple of months, look, the John Brown volunteers are headed to Texas. That's happening. Uh, December 1st, they'll be in Texas. Um, and we'll be doing a Texas campaign with the John Brown volunteers to support the organizing in Texas. After that, there will be a Chicago campaign. And then we're going to have a national gathering this summer, uh, probably in July, I would assume. We're going to have a national gathering uh, for the Center for Political Innovation. Uh, it'll be longer than usual. I'm thinking like a week, perhaps a week-long national gathering in July. Um, and hopefully at that point, the John Brown volunteers will have expanded enough that we can function uh, in multiple states at the time. Right now, the John Brown Volunteer Brigade is small, right? The CPI, I'll just answer this other question too, right? Someone asked, what's the difference between the John Brown Volunteers and the CPI? Center for Political Innovation is a think tank. Anyone can join, you know, you got a wife, you got kids, you got a job, you know, you just want to be part of it. You want to come to our conferences. You want to watch our stuff on the internet. You want to come to be part of our Zoom calls. CPI is for anybody. John Brown Volunteers is a full-time outreach team. It is people that have decided that they want to, um, that they want to do this full time. They want to give their life to this. And it's not easy. It's quite difficult. And it's quite difficult to financially sustain. I'll tell you that much too. Um, you know, but it's people who have chosen to become, you know, cadre to make this their lifestyle, right? And uh, they live together and they they go out and they spread the revolutionary message and they they build the CPI full time. They're cadre, right? They're, they're full-time activists. Um, and, you know, we want to make that available to everybody, but it's not an easy, uh, not an easy thing to do, right? I mean, it's, it takes a lot of hard work and they have ways of getting by and they, 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 you know, they pull their own weight, et cetera. Um, but it's a difficult thing to do. That's the John Brown volunteers. They're full-time cadre. Um, and it's, you know, I donate a lot to it. Other people donate and they, they also have ways of, you know, of raising money and, and supporting themselves, et cetera. And it's very difficult. It's not an easy, not an easy thing to do. Um, but, uh, that's the John Brown volunteers. And right now the John Brown volunteer group is, is not very big, right? It's less than 10 people. That's okay. I mean, it's by having them, we have way more than we, we used to have. I'll tell you that much right now. They're in the New York city area, uh, but soon they will be dispatched to Texas, um, because there is a lot of people, there's organizations in Texas and others who are sympathetic to us, who are having reading groups and such, and they're going to be in Texas supporting them next. Uh, they'll be in Chicago. And our hope is that by summertime, by the time of our natural get national gathering, they will be big enough that we can send them to multiple parts of the country. Um, but basically, yeah, if you're, if you're young, uh, you know, and if you're, you know, you, you're, you know, you don't, you don't have a job or you're, you know, you've just been in school or whatever. Um, you know, if you, um, if you want to become a John Brown volunteer, we'd like to make that happen. Um, and you know, right now we're in the process of expanding the John Brown volunteers. Anybody can't just be a John Brown volunteer. It's not a matter of filling out a form. You have to, we have to meet you. Um, well, thank you, Felonious Punk. We have to meet you. We have to try you out. And some people can't do it. You know, there's been some people that have come around have tried to be John Brown volunteers and they just can't, they can't do it, right? They're just, they're not up to the task, right? Not everybody has what it takes. It is not easy. It is not an easy thing to do, um, but some people can do it. And if you're capable of doing it, you're in a life situation where that's what you want to do. Um, by all means, contact us. We'd like to make you a John Brown volunteer. Um, and we may not be able to plug you in immediately. It may take us a while to plug you in. And it may be that you're not up to the task, right? It's not, not everyone is, is able to do it. 
But if you're able to do it, uh, we'd like to have you do it. We'd like to have cadre. And we have people who are doing it, right? Joey, Keaton, Geeky, uh, you know, um, some others, they're doing it. Uh, you know, some others, they're, they're doing it. Lily did it all summer, uh, you know, and, and some people might be able to do it for a little while and then they move on to something else and that's okay too, right? There was somebody who did it, you know, for a while and they went back to college. That's cool, right? Um, but if you're able to do it, we'd like to have you do it. Um, but we have to check you out first. And uh, there's some pretty strict rules about it. There can't be any drugs, mind you. No drugs. I mean, I'm sorry, uh, you know, but if we can't have any drugs in our John Brown volunteer houses, that's one thing we can't have in the housing. Um, you know, there's some pretty, pretty strict standards of conduct, right? You know, that if you're going to be representing this organization as full time, you have to, you have to do it in a responsible way, uh, you know, and it's a lot of work. I'll just be honest. It's a lot of work. Um, it's a lot of work. It's not easy. You know, you can ask Keaton, you can ask Joey, you can ask Kiki, you can ask Lily what it's like. It's not, it's not a walk in the park. It's not, you know, just, uh, you know, it's not just, you know, you know, easy. It's quite difficult. And some people have tried it and haven't been up to it. That's okay. You know, it doesn't mean they're a bad person. It just means they, they can't do it. And that's okay. Not everyone can do this. I can't do it, right? I can't do, I couldn't be a John Brown volunteer at this point in my life. At this point in my life, I've got a family to support. I've got a job. I've got obligations. I couldn't be a John Brown volunteer. So if you can't be a John Brown volunteer, you're in the same situation as me. And I'm great. I'm amazing. So you're fine. But, you know, it's not something everybody can do. But um, but our hope is that the number of people that can do this, and I I lived this way for a long time. Right? There was a time in my life where I lived this way, um, you know, where I was a full-time activist. Um, I'm not anymore. Now I'm a journalist and I do all kinds of different stuff. And But, you know, I was a full-time activist at one time and it was a great time. It was a great experience. I grew amazingly well. Um, I spoke, I learned to speak better. I learned to interact with people better. Um, I learned how the world works. I mean, it was a time in my life, in my 20s. I spent most of my 20s, I would say. You know, I, I, I worked at the insurance company up until Occupy Wall Street. Then I started working, you know, I started working with the International Action Center full time. And, you know, I learned a lot during those years. I made some mistakes and I ultimately was very frustrated because, you know, that was a dying organization I was working with. But I learned a lot and largely the ideology and the worldview that has developed in at the Center for Political Innovation is a result of what I learned during those years. And then I was able to travel and, you know, so, you know, if you're able, if you want to become a John Brown volunteer, uh, if you feel like you're up to the task, um, you can reach out to us. Now, the Center for Political Innovation, that's for anybody. Anyone can join the CPI, right? As long as you're in agreement with our main points, our formal membership at this point, CPI is informal. Membership is informal. But starting January 1st, we're going to open the membership on the website. Everyone who's applied to join will get an email telling them to officially join. And joining will be a matter of filling out a form on the website, you know, paying dues. You'll have to pay your dues. Uh, so starting January 1st, the Center for Political Innovation will have formal membership. That's being set up for January 1st. So CPI is for everybody. Everyone who can afford to pay dues can join the CPI. John Brown Volunteers is for people that are ready to be full-time and are ready to be cadre. Um, my hope is that uh, it can become the culture of the organization that, uh, that you know, you know, as people grow up and have kids and all of that, that, that everyone, it's, it's considered to be an obligation that everyone takes a year. You know, if you're 
you're a young person, maybe a year before you go to college, you, you, you become a John Brown volunteer and you take a year to do that. Um, you know, it should be considered, you know, that as, as you become a respectable person, right, as a respected member of the organization, that you take at least some time to be a John Brown volunteer. But then again, some people just can't, right? I can't be a John Brown volunteer, uh, but some people can. And if you can, we'd like to help you do it. And if you can't, you can't. And that's okay. You know, we all contribute in different ways. Uh, you know, we have Project 432, which is an explicitly religious wing of the Center for Political Innovation, oriented toward Christians. Um, we are in the process of developing a feminist organization that'll be a women's wing of the Center for Political Innovation. That'll be women only. I won't be part of it because I'm not a woman. Uh, you know, um, yeah, that'll be the women's only wing of the organization that'll be dedicated to women's issues. Um, you know, we're looking to build a coalition around Fusion City. Um, you know, we have different ways of expanding the Center for Political Innovation. Uh, the John Brown Volunteers are the cadre. They're the core of full-time people who are part of it. And you really need that in order to really have an organization. You need a core of people that are full-time, you know? Um, so yes, our notion of expansion is right now, uh, right now we're operating. At this point, we have CPI locals and uh, we have one in Texas. We have one in California. Uh, we have one in New York City. We have one in Chicago. And we, uh, and, you know, and we have some, uh, one in D.C., um, and we are looking to not only have those locals expand, uh, but we're looking to get locals in other areas. We have hundreds of people around the country who have filled out a form and, and applied to join the CPI. We have a Zoom call every Saturday and everyone, um, you know, um, great, Neil. We'll show you the dotted line. Everyone who has applied uh, gets an email. An email goes out to hundreds of people every Saturday, inviting them to our Zoom call. So if you're one of those people, you're welcome to join our Zoom calls. Um, and then, uh, you know, we have various committees, you know, the tech committee, other groups in the CPI. And then, um, you know, but starting uh, on January 1st, the membership will be formal. That You'll be a dues-paying member of the CPI. And at that point, uh, you know, we're incorporated now. CPI Publications is incorporated in the state of New York. We are a corporation. Um, and at that point, you'll be a member. Um and um, there you go. Um, and we plan to expand. Um, now, obviously, right now, we're just kind of getting the organization functioning on a national level. Um, that's, that's where we're at at the current moment, is we're functioning on a national level. Uh, but once we're functioning, uh, we're going to plan targeted outreach. Um, we're going to plan specific campaigns around Fusion City, specific campaigns aimed at libertarians, aimed at the synthetic left you know, targeted campaigns, uh, you know, to politically intervene. Um, so there you go. Yeah. Um, and we're becoming a real thing, you know. Um, I would say we're different. We're not a party. We're not a party, right? We're not a new socialist group. We're not a new party. We have a different style of organizing. The main way we organize is to the broad masses of people, we bring our policy solutions. Policy solutions. And to the advanced, we offer socialist education. And that's what, what we're about, right? That's our approach. You know, to the broad masses of people, we go to them with our four-point plan. We go to them with um, Lacan. Is, I don't know Lacan. We go to them with our four-point plan. Uh, we go to them with 
Fusion City. We go to them with a Sandino Zapata economic corridor. That's our approach to the broad masses of Americans is our program, our policy solutions. And then our approach to people that want to get involved in the group is we offer socialist education. We offer classes on Marx, classes on Lenin, classes on economics, classes on the Soviet Union, classes on Xi Jinping and on Baathism and, and all of that. That's how we operate. So, um, you know, it's a twofold educational project. That's what we're about. Um, and we're expanding and we're doing the best we can. Look, this is what I can do, folks. I'm not saying that CPI is going to single-handedly transform the United States into socialism because it won't. CPI is an educational think tank. When something, when a movement to build socialism as a movement for socialism in the United States emerges, um, it, this will be a part of it. This is going to be a big part of the movement to build socialism, but it will be an educational think tank. It's not a labor union. It's not an entity, a political party that runs in elections, right? Not Nothing like that. And such entities will emerge and other people are going to do them. Somebody in the labor movement will build labor unions that are socialist. Somebody, somebody who's a politician will run for office on a platform. And, uh, you know, other people will do other things. This is what we have decided we can do. The second verse of the Internationale. No more delayed by your react. No, 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 no. That's not it. We want no condescending saviors to rule us from the judgment hall. We workers ask not for their favors. Let us consult for all. To make the thieves give up their booty, to free the spirit from the cell. Each must themselves decide their duty. They must decide and do it well. Well, that's what we're saying here. We are deciding our duty. There you go. All right, voluntarism. All right, well, there's two, there's two, two interpretations of that word. Um, I believe anarcho-capitalists or ANCAPs, as they call them, were referring to themselves as voluntarists at some point. And they were arguing that basically uh, they're against violence. You know, it's the standard anarcho-capitalist, Stefan Molyneux, we're against violence. We're against force. Everyone should just, you know, be free. You know, we're, you know, it, it, you know it's this libertarian, we want a world without a government where no one's compelled to do anything. That's, that's one definition of the term voluntarism. That's not the definition uh, that socialist societies, um, right? All right. All right. <clears throat> um, <coughs> wrote it down. Um, you know, um, but the other definition of voluntarism, it's kind of like left adventurism. It's revolutionaries who, they do revolutionary activity not because of the impact that it will have, uh, but because it makes them excited, right? You know, it, it makes them feel revolutionary. Right, they they're volunteering to do it. They're they're volunt. You know, it, it it's like they're focused on not what the revolutionary movement needs, but what they feel like. Right, you know, and that's they talk about left adventurism. They talk about ultra leftism, like people who boycott elections. You know that that you know that that's that's you know it's considered to be a form of ultra leftism. 
is that, you know, they want to do something really exciting. They want to, you know, and, and it's not really helping the revolutionary movement. Um, so that that's within Marxist circles. That's what it means. Um, but there you go. All right. Someone said Venezuela, Belarus, and Nicaragua don't have five-year plans and politburos. I think they do. I mean, they may not officially call it that, but they do have central planning. They have a huge amount of economic planning. And they do have people in the government, economic ministers that make those plans. They may not call them five-year plans. They may not call them politburos, but they do have people that are fulfilling that function within their government apparatus. Absolutely. All right. Um, already answered JBVs versus CPI. Expensive property taxes. Yeah, it's awful, right? Working people are, are hit by these property taxes. Um, make the oligarchs pay. Make the oligarchy pay. Make the rich pay, right? Stop punishing small business owners. Stop punishing working people who own own their houses, right? Make the rich pay. Make the bosses pay. All right. Um, <clears throat> undercurrents on the right. All right. Convert to the one true holy Catholic faith. I'm not Catholic. I'm Protestant. I'm Protestant, and I respect all religions. I respect all religious beliefs. I respect no religion. If you're an atheist, I respect you, so there you go. Um, <clears throat> undercurrents on the right. Glenn Beck is a Mormon, and he's tied to the Mormon apparatus. Uh, the Mormon church, you know, the Mormons, that's, you know, they have a lot of influence in FBI and CIA. They're Republicans generally, but they don't like Trump, um, and it's a current on the right. Right? It's a big part of the, the right wing in the United States, and it's a big part of the apparatus, the Mormons. Um, you know, uh, that's a big faction. Uh, there are some, there are, you know, there's people of praise, for example, which is, that's the religious, the religious cult that Amy Coney Barrett, uh, the new Supreme Court justice, she claims to be Catholic, but she's actually part of this Pentecostal infiltration of the Catholic Church that's called, um, that's called, uh, uh, people of praise. Um, you know, there's Washington Times, which is the Unification Church. There's the Falun Gong, uh, which is Epoch Times, and that's an anti-China. It's the China lobby, right? And um, uh, what is his name? Um, he comes out, he's, he was part of the Trump. What's his name? Um, I can't remember his name, but he was an advisor to Trump, and he was like an anti-China economics fanatic. And, you know, the Falun Gong, that's the China lobby, the obsessive anti-China folks and their core are members of the Falun Gong. That's the Epic Times. There are different currents on the right. Um, there are different currents on the right at this point. Um, um, <clears throat> I'm trying to think of different currents on the right. Um, you know, libertarianism, the Cato Institute, Peter Navarro, that's who it is. Peter Navarro. Peter Navarro, Epic Times, that's the China lobby. Uh, you have Washington Times, that's the Unification Church, that's Reverend Sun Young Moon, that's South Korean intelligence. Um, you know, you also have, you know, there's the Israel lobby, the Netanyahu wing of the Israel lobby, the Likudniks, they're a big factor on the right in the United States. There's, you know, Salt Lake City, the Mormons, they're a big factor on the right. Um, there's the frackers, the fracking companies are a big, big layer of influence on the right wing. Um, the fracking companies, they fund PragerU, PragerU, the YouTube channel gets a lot of money. Um, they get a lot of money from, uh, from fracking companies. Um, there you go. There you go. All righty. Uh, do, do you oppose mandates because, uh, the government should win the trust of the workers? Yeah, I think it's an issue of respect. Um, I think the fact that so many workers have gone out to protest these mandates, there's been such widespread outrage shows that on some level, the government needs to just 
not do this, right? That if that many people are opposing something, right? If they, I mean, it's one thing, you know, when you have to compel people to do things for public health, that's one thing, right? I mean, but if there's that much opposition and that much outrage, and there's a lot of people who are vaccinated who oppose the mandates, you know, at that point, the government needs to stop and say, what's the deal here? What's the deal here? And that's my, my position generally. I'm vaccinated. I, I would never discourage anyone from getting vaccinated. But the fact that there's so much outrage among firefighters and EMTs and nurses, um, that makes me think that the government needs to go wait a second here uh, and show more respect, I think. If there's that much distrust, there you go. All right, we're going to end this broadcast. A new upsurge in the struggle against U.S. imperialism is now emerging throughout the world. Ever since World War II, U.S. imperialism and its followers have been continuously launching wars of aggression. The people of various countries have been continuously waging revolutionary wars to defeat their aggression. While the danger of a new world war still exists, people of all countries must get prepared. Revolution is the main trend in the world today. While the danger of a new world war still exists, and the people of all countries must get prepared. Revolution is the main trend in the world today. Good night.